make sure I'm on here. How are we doing? Great. Good morning. Great to be with you today and delighted about this particular weekend. It's been so wonderful to be a part of the concert series. And uh, if you've not seen it, I know you're going to want to be a part of it tonight. It is a great, great time of worship in the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next Lord's Day, of course, I'm going to focus in on the birth of Christ. But as you know, we have been in an appropriate series, really, about dying to self. And in a holiday season like this, when the culture around us doesn't seem to let up, and uh, even in a holiday festival celebration that's supposed to be all about giving, it's, it's quite apparent that the struggle of humankind continues. We are selfish beings, our culture is a selfish culture, and on and on it goes, even if the holiday is focused on giving to others. It's appropriate then that we look at the whole matter of dying to self and and finish up our series in what I hope will be an encouragement to you as we think about what we have learned in these practical steps for, for having more of Christ in our life, for being more of an influence for the Lord Jesus Christ rather than being about ourselves. It's been difficult, I know. Uh, When you talk about dying to self and you go through practical principles and you want to put them into practice and you go home and you get yourself all geared up, uh, uh, you realize that it's a step forward and a couple backward and it's another couple steps forward and then four backwards and this is is the struggle and the strain of the Christian life. The, The wonderful reality is that you get to take a step forward that the power of the Holy Spirit is there because without Him, there's no way to move forward at all. And we have been dying to self in a lot of different ways. And so let's just go through the list very quickly. Uh, If you're going to deal with the issues of self uh, in your own heart, then you do so in some practical ways. You want to die to self-reliance? Then ask God every day for spiritual understanding. You want to die to self-reliance? Ask Him for spiritual understanding. If you want to die to self-indulgence, then orient your life toward the truth. That is to say, structure it for the elevation, the promotion, the practice of truth. The third was was the death of self-exaltation, and that is to allow the truth to, to cut you down, to bring you low, to allow the truth to indict your heart and correct and renew and refresh and make you think differently. Number four was to seal up those areas in your life that bring in temptation. We called them portals, but it doesn't really matter what analogy you use or metaphor you use. If you want to die to self-deception, you're going to have to eliminate areas of temptation in your life. Number five was to lose yourself in other people's needs. To lose yourself in other people's needs. This is a death of self-interest to find out what God wants you to do to meet other people's needs, and then at your own expense, meet them, whatever they might be, from spiritual counsel to even practical needs. And then number six was the death of self-preservation, and that is the idea of cultivating a thankful heart. Cultivating a thankful heart. That causes you to die to that tendency we have to preserve ourselves, but no matter what the circumstance we're in, we ought to Rise to God first in gratitude and thankfulness. Last week, we 
looked at number seven, which is the death of self-entitlement, the death of self-entitlement, and that is to learn the grace of contentment, the grace of contentment. There were three lessons in that. Lesson number one was that true contentment is not from earthly satisfaction. We'll look just briefly at a little more of that today, which should encourage your heart. True contentment is not from earthly satisfaction. Lesson number two looked at it from the other angle. True contentment then transcends temporal concerns. True contentment rises above the din of temporal concerns and helps you to live in the power of the Spirit of God with God's perspective. And lesson number three, it comes from sufficiency in Christ. True contentment comes from sufficiency in Christ. So now we come to number eight, and this will be the death of self-fulfillment. The death of self-fulfillment. Number eight is to set your mind on the return of Christ. If you want more of Christ and less of you, if you want to die to self... You must learn to let go of this life and set your mind on the return of Jesus Christ. Take your Bible for a moment and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a very important passage that tells us that, that as a Christian, we have a particular ambition that is heaven-driven, that is not earthly. And it is very, very honest. This passage is very honest about what we live in right now in this particular existence on earth. We live in a fallen world and we have a body that is not fashioned yet for glory. And this passage is rather blunt and and honest and I appreciate that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse One, we know that if this earthly body, this earthly tent, which is our present house, we know that if it's torn down, that is to say, it's dying, it's torn down by sin, but if it's torn down, we have a structure, a building from God. It is a body or a house not made with hands, and it is eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for indeed in this house we groan. Boy, isn't that the truth? Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. I want my glorified body. I want my sinless condition. I want it. I want it as much as I long for anything. Notice verse 4, we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's true. I don't want to live in this death arena anymore, the realm of death. I want this mortality to be swallowed up by life. So look at verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, verse 6 says we know that while we're at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. We have to walk by faith here. You don't walk by sight here. You, You don't realize heaven while you're here. There are glimpses of it, tastes of it. You know, this whole idea that you're going to have this, this, this emotional, joyful experience constantly every day of your life that just makes you uh, obey with ease this side of heaven is a mistake. You should not imagine that this side doesn't 
involve a battle to believe. It does involve a battle to believe, and he says that. Hey, while we're at home in this earthly body, we're absent from the Lord, so we walk by faith. I don't walk by my feelings. I don't walk by how good things are going. I can't, because I know that if it's good today, around the corner is another battle. I know that. That's reality. This is honest. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say. Oh, and we prefer rather to be absent from the body and home with the Lord. Absolutely, that's my preference. Lord, whatever you have for me to do here, I want to be here. But, but boy, as this thing breaks down, as I see sin, as I see it in my own heart, as I see my own weakness, as I see the world spinning out of control, I prefer to be with the Lord. So therefore, we have as our ambition, whether I'm at home here in the body or an absent from the Lord or home there with him and absent from the body here, I have as my ambition to be pleasing to him. That's the issue. Listen to these texts. I'm, don't turn there, but just I'll read them. Psalm 37, verse 9. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Evildoers will be cut off. This thing is going to end, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. I love the 119th Psalm. Doc Z has preached that wonderfully on Sunday nights during our summer sessions. And uh, Psalm 119, verse 81, my soul longs for salvation, I hope in your word. My soul longs for it. Not just that I'm justified now in Christ. Not just that I I have the Spirit of God living in me now. I long for the full expression of salvation. I want it then. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10 says that when the Thessalonians got saved, they had just a few weeks with Paul, maybe just a couple of months with him as he taught them. And he says of them, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for him longingly. They're already waiting for him longingly. That was 2,000 years ago. 2 Timothy 4, 8, in the future, Paul says, this is his last letter, this is his last thing to say to his young disciple Timothy, in the future, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but listen to this, everyone who loves his appearing. I love the appearing of Christ. It's not here yet, but I love the appearing of him. I want it. I want him to appear. I want to see him as he is. I want to know him as he is to be known. We eagerly wait for it, Paul says in Romans 8.25. We eagerly wait for a savior, Philippians 3.20. So, so Colossians 3 says, set your mind on the things above You want to die to self-fulfillment? Stop trying to find it here. Stop trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment here. Stop it. We're going to look this morning at what we have coming. It is absolutely the solution for dying to self. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Again, a very honest text. A very honest text. Uh, 
In this life, Paul says, we suffer. Notice verse 17, the second half. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Notice verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. Notice verse 19, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. Why? Because verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Notice that it, it needs to be free from its slavery to corruption, verse 21. Verse 22, we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Verse 23, and not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Beloved, this is a description of the Christian, eager, longing for what's to come. Not settled comfortableness here. There's such a sense when you read this text of, of the absence of fulfillment here. Everything I read when I read this text screams at me that there's nothing here to fulfill me. There is a work to be done for sure. There is a Christ-likeness to grow into as my, the Spirit of God battles with my flesh to be sure. There is an ongoing struggle for sure until I meet Christ. But there is, when you read this text... In the end, in the final analysis, a groaning, an endless groaning, an agony, a longing. There is rising from this text the assumption that the believer, once they're in Christ, is eager for something else. We're not longing for this here. Why? Well, the first thing you notice when you see how Paul comes into verse 18, is that we have an inheritance waiting for us. Look, I want my inheritance, not for me personally, absent from the glory of Christ, not for me to spend like I would some earthly riches, but the inheritance that God has planned for all those who love him. It's coming, and on that basis, I long for that day. Notice verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. I'm being led by the Spirit of God, so I'm a son of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. I don't don't fear judgment. I don't have that hanging over my conscience. I'm not bound in the bondage of sin. I don't live in the realm of death. I'm not a slave to those old things. I can actually be righteous in the power of the Spirit of God in this life. I can have new inclinations, new desires for Christ. I can even experience times of a settled joy that came through the resurrection life given to me in Christ. So I've not received the spirit of the slavery of the old things, but I've received, notice verse 15, a spirit of adoption as sons that draws me into an intimate crying out for my Father. I long to be restored to Him. I long to be with Him. I long to be intimate with the Godhead. I long to walk in righteousness and dwell with Him in righteousness. So... The spirit of adoption in me cries out, Lord, 
I want that intimate fellowship with you. You're my father. How did that happen? Verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our inner man that we are children of God. But notice verse 17, and if children, heirs also. You're not just a child who gets to go be a part of the family. You're an heir of whatever the adoption provides. We are heirs also, and notice, first of all, heirs of God. This particular concept in the original language here means that he's not only the source, but he's also the object. It is a, it is a form of the word that means he's the source, and he's ultimately the portion of it. So we could say it this way, we are heirs of all that God gives to those who are partakers in Him. He's the ultimate portion that we're after. In fact, when God gives the final inheritance to His Son, and all believers are included in that final reward, all believers fully glorified are included in that, then we will be caught up in that experience and we will know in that moment the blazing glory of God in all of its fullness and we will eternally marvel in awe and wonder and in that indescribable sense of sinlessness and holy fulfillment in Him. That will happen in that moment, and in that moment we are an heir of God. He's not only the source of all that we will be given, but He's the supreme object of all our inheritance. The Old Testament knew that, and the psalmist looked forward to that. Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Listen to that. Besides you, I don't desire anything on earth. Whatever you can do in me and through me while I'm here, I'm ready. Whatever you do while, while you leave me here, I'm, I'm, I'm your servant. I only desire you on earth for the purpose that you have called me to. After that, close my life off. After that, end it. Because you're my portion. And on earth, I don't desire anything besides whatever you want. Psalm 119, 57, the Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. You're my portion, Lord. Your word is my portion. You're my refuge, Psalm 142, verse 5. My portion in the land of the living. I have hope in him because he's my portion. Lamentations 3.24. We're to be filled up to all the fullness of God, Paul would say in Ephesians 3.18. And I love this. Revelation 21, verse 3. That great text at the consummation of all things when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom and his people are with him and there's righteousness dwelling in the land. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is among men. The tabernacle of God is among men. He's dwelling among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be among them. That's all you need is God among his people. Listen, beloved. To see God in all of his fullness. 
to stare into the fullness of the righteous and holy God of the universe, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to be totally and forever captivated by the divine beauty of God, that indescribable, unfathomable experience. That's what it means to experience ultimate blessing. And people on earth don't get it because unbelief in the heart won't accept it. People say, it doesn't sound like much fun. That kind of thinking is an indictment. Self-fulfillment here and now, that's, that is sin-cursed thinking. I've said to you before, when Moses had one request before his God, when he wanted to know his God, he didn't say, you know, I'd sure like an earthly inheritance. Could you give me some nice retirement? Could you give me all these resources? Could you give me a kingdom and maybe some family around at my deathbed so they can, you know, rejoice in all the legacy I've provided? Can you give me that? That wasn't, that wasn't what he asked. He said, Lord, can I stare into your glory and not be killed? Could I look at your glory and not be killed? And the Lord had warned in Exodus 33, 20, you can't look at my face and live because you're sinful. But I'll shield you and give you a glimpse of it, although your skin's going to burn for a while because of it. True believers long for that more than anything else. It was a brazen request, but it is in the heart of every true believer. We long for what heaven brings. It's understandable that Moses would ask for that. Why? Because we want to be rid of the sin that keeps us from staring at his face. And when God's creatures behold his unapproachable light and they don't die, they don't go out of eternal existence, they don't go out into a separation from him for all eternity, when they can look at his unapproachable light and the beauty of his perfections and know life as God intended it, a sinless existence in complete harmony with who he is, we will truly then be in that moment free at rest, at rest. And so here's the bottom line. If you're a child of God, then God is your portion. He is what you must long for, and you are an heir of God if you are in Christ. Notice verse 17. You're also a fellow heir with Christ. I mean, it wasn't enough that he said an heir of God. He said you're a fellow heir with Christ. Why is that important to us? Because we see what Christ is. We see who he is as a man. A human being. We see that he has life in himself. He was righteous, pure, undefiled, holy. That's how I want to be. We see that he pleased his father at every turn. That's what I want to do. We see that he returned to the right hand of his father and stares into the unapproachable light of the Godhead as a man. That's what I want. I want to be with him. Whatever Christ has received... I've received it in him. That is absolutely the death of self. That just kills me. That just ends my desire for any fulfillment here. I mean, we have trillionaires today who want to be leaders of the free world. Are you kidding? You want to, you want to be a leader of an, a sin-cursed earth? I don't. 
I'm an heir of the entire universe in its freedom from sin. You want to rule a sin-cursed earth? What a disaster. You can have it. No contest. The riches that we have, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, are given to us in Christ, and he became poor that we might become rich. What kind of rich? An inheritance. God is our portion. Everything that Christ has is given to us. And he's a man, and he'll be a man forever. He'll be a human being, one of us forever. I mean, beloved, get your mind around the fact that the Godhead, the second member of the Trinity in the Godhead, will be a human being forever. He doesn't go back to being merely a spirit. He doesn't go back to being merely a formless second member of the Godhead. He's one of us forever. And you are a fellow heir with that. You want something here? Why? This is passing away. You say, oh, but pastor, we suffer here. Horrible losses. Well, this is the honesty of this passage. Notice, If you're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, it is true. Indeed, we suffer with him. There is a required path. It was the path he walked. Sin is devastating. Sin is horrific. Sin destroys. God has a solution. He came. He became one of us. And he bore sin. And he suffered. And he says, just walk with me through that path. It's only for a little while. It's only for a while. Notice, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So we have an inheritance, but we suffer on the way to getting it. Some people want a better life now because they don't want to suffer now. Listen, the more you suffer now, the more it's a reminder of what is to come. It's a death of self-fulfillment. The disciple's not above his master. Matthew 10, 24, the disciple's not above his master. It's enough that you're like your master. I love 1 Peter (laughs) 5.10. You know, here we are, 8,000 years of human history in fallenness, somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 years of human history. Post the cross, after the resurrection, we've had 2,000 years of the gracious new covenant of God spreading across the globe, and yet the globe still suffers, and it groans, and everything groans, including every human being. And yet, Peter says, in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, you're like, suffered a little while? I mean, the fall happened somewhere between six and 10,000 years ago. Don't you think seven, 8,000 years of suffering under the curse of sin is enough? Compared to eternity? <laughs> It's nothing. Peter, just with the stroke of a pen under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, a little while. It's a little while. And you and I live, what? I mean, I love the fact I got off the ark, God changed it to 120 years average. He set a ceiling on it. Why did he set a ceiling on it? Because of sin. Man 
is cursed from his youth, and so I'm shortening the lifespan. You say, boy, I'd like to live that full 120. No, you wouldn't. It's just more sin. Aren't you thankful that it, it, it kind of starts getting really tired and slowing way down somewhere between 60 and 100? You notice how gracious I was with that? Some of you might have been offended if you can hear it. I have hearing aids. I can say that. <laughs> God graciously set a limit. Why? It's just a little while. It's just a little while longer. And after you've suffered for a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He will. So what does Paul say in verse 18? Then I consider the sufferings of this present time are not Worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There it is. There's the death of self-fulfillment. It is not to be compared. You think that if you don't get what you want here for your happiness, you're going to miss out on something? An heir of God, a joint heir with Christ, suffering for a little while... You're not going to miss anything that is worthy of eternity. I read it to you earlier, 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. There's the same idea. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. That is to say, you're thinking about glory, pondering glory, longing for glory. You're being renewed by the Spirit of God to want glory rather than stuff here and momentary light affliction. We, we read that and we just sort of chuckle because it's true. That's how the Holy Spirit pens it. But there's the reality. It is momentary. It is light. And it is producing for us an eternal heaviness, an eternal weightiness. Whatever is worthy of eternity, whatever is deep enough for eternity, whatever has the depth of God associated with it, whatever is as deep as God's own character and nature, then that is what is being produced in your suffering and my suffering, and it is beyond all comparisons. Here's the reality, beloved. You couldn't think of something in your mind on this, in this life with your earthly imagination that could even, that could even register nothing. Boy, I wish I could have less of this. I wish I could have less of that. I wish I could lose less of this. I wish I could not suffer that. I wish I could not go through that. Listen, there's an eternal weight of glory being produced. Say, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that there's eternal value from the present lessons. I mean, you don't even have to cope. You don't even have to merely get along with it and merely cope with it. Yes, there's endurance and perseverance, but these are, there's eternal value being produced in how you go through it and while you go through it. You say, what do you mean? Well, first of all, greater faith. Every moment of belief in God brings him greater glory that will be a testimony throughout eternity to all those who have ever believed. 
and to God's glory and to Christ's power, all of it. Greater faith, greater dependency. God, when he takes us through things, wants us to grow in our understanding of what it means to believe him in spite of what's going on here. And every time you do, every time you exercise faith, he he is valued, his glory is magnified, and it becomes an eternal testimony. You say, well, is that all? No. You get greater strength for whatever it is he's called you to do here until he takes you home. Greater courage. You learn of his power in a greater way. You, you, you can't know that till you step out. I know you're looking at the cliff. There is no bridge, but when you step out and the bridge appears, you gain courage. And, you know, people look at that. They see someone suffering. And they're like, How do they do it? How do they do it? You only walk there by faith. And when you get on the other side of that moment of faith, then you, you see it. It's just as obvious as can be. God sustained me. God grew me. God gave me courage. It was supernatural. It wasn't me. It's exactly what happens. There's greater comfort. You draw near to Christ. How many times have you heard someone in suffering? They said, I'm closer to God than I've ever been. Ever heard that? Of course. Of course. And you learn to identify and appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ Because as Paul said in Philippians, I long to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know what it costs to purchase me. I want to intimately know it. He felt it. He wore it. He was under it. He bore it. I want to know the fellowship of that. It gives me greater gratitude and greater joy. So whatever loss, whatever insults, whatever imprisonment, whatever inflictions, whatever physical pains, whatever tortures, or even death you may have to suffer for Christ is absolutely nothing compared to the inheritance. And from an earthly vantage point, it may seem horrific, but it is a momentary light affliction that is producing greater faith, greater courage, greater comfort, greater gratitude and joy before you even get there. Christians who spend their days and their time and energies focusing on earthly resources, earthly aspirations. That's become their idol. Strategies on the pursuit of earthly happiness here and now. Beloved, that is horribly misguided. Heirs of God suffer in this life. Fellow heirs of Christ can expect the same path that he walked. And though you long for the majesty and glory of heaven, you do it while letting go of the stuff here. But it's not just, not just eternal value in the present, but it's eternal glory from the present afflictions. The more you suffer here, the more magnified glory in heaven that you enjoy. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says that. In this you greatly rejoice, these trials, even though now for a little while, there it is again, a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In order that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
Even though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, our suffering in this life for the sake of Christ yields an unimaginable amount of eternal praise and glory and honor when he returns. What that looks like, what that feels like, we don't yet know, but it is beyond comparison. It's incomprehensible. It's inconceivable. It's indescribable. So when you walk through the afflictions, and the devastating losses of life, and then you rest in the promises of Almighty God, every pain and sorrow, every unforeseen devastation, every injustice and hateful insult, every cruel loss, every feeling of loneliness in this life is multiplying your future experience of divine pleasures and perfect joy. And listen, the more you suffer here, the more you're going to experience the, the grandeur there. chairman of our elder board was diagnosed just a couple of weeks ago with pancreatic cancer. And um, as any of you would know, that's serious business. And uh, he, he understands the reality of what's coming. We don't know the time frames. He's already weakened by it. He's a sweet, dear brother. Been here since I've been here. Many of you have experienced those kinds of losses in family and among friends. Many of you battling similar battles with the disease of cancer of various kinds, even now. It's an aggressive kind of cancer. Saw him the other day, just <clears throat> every few moments of energy enough to talk blurts out some kind of rejoicing, <laughs> some kind of thankfulness for the grace of Christ. Might be his last Christmas. We're praying that he'll have one more. He's suffering. Many of you are suffering. You meditate on the thought for a moment that all that affliction helps you die to self-fulfillment in this life. And the reason someone suffering like that can rejoice in that way is because there's been a dying to self going on in your Christian life. And now you have to walk through the ultimate experience of, of that transition perhaps in days and months ahead like many of you have experienced with a family member whom you've lost. Whatever God may do, whether he intervenes and leaves us here or, or the chapter closes, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have no hope. Suffering in this life just ends at death and you face the judgment without any hope. How miserable is that? Some terrible pain or affliction befalls somebody, takes the wind out of them, but they have no hope in Christ. How desperate a condition outside of Christ. But for believers, it's completely the opposite. That's the right view of sorrow. You die to self-fulfillment when you long for the return of Christ because in the return of Christ, everything, everything becomes finally rest. Finally rest. And don't imagine that um, 
you're going to get anything from this earth that's worth anything. Notice what Paul says in this text. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the whole creation groans, he says. It is in the childbirth pains until the very day when this letter was written, and it will continue to be as a reminder that everything in this world groans, including ourselves. We know it within. We know it as we look at the creation around us. Boy, isn't that true. The word here that the creation is anxiously waiting. Some of your translations say anxious waiting. That is because this verb is, carries that idea of this eager anticipation. <laughs> you know, the, the, the earth isn't wanting us to you know, come alongside it and preserve it. It's already been promised a preservation and a restoration and a complete reversal of the curse. You don't know, be cruel to it. It does have some wonder and beauty that's staggering. We all enjoy that, but oh, it's pathetically minimal compared to what God is going to do. I'm sure the creation, when we go to the Grand Canyon and look at it in utter awe, creation says, that's nothing. That's subjected to futility. That's nothing. This scripture teaches us to eagerly wait. We eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, as this text says. We await eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 7. We're waiting for the hope of righteousness, Galatians 5, 5. We, we, we wait for a Savior eagerly because our citizenship is there, Philippians three twenty. Even the non-rational, inanimate creatures... And the animals, and anything non human that resides on the earth in this universe, it has been subjected to the curse so that it longingly awaits for our redemption so that it can have the curse reversed. <laughs> that is amazing. God's entire created universe of non moral things waits and longs. It's like it's a personified entity. And again, that was a concept that was familiar to God's people, even from the Old Testament, Isaiah 55 12. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's a familiar concept. The revealing of the sons of God is what the creation waits for. But creation feels the curse. I mean, why would a human being want to hang on to this life when the creation itself isn't trying to hang on to it? Creation itself isn't trying to hang on to itself. Greenpeace people say, oh, if we could just get rid of man, he's the enemy of nature. No, 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 no. No, the greatest thing that will ever happen to creation is what Jesus Christ did in redeeming sinners. Because when our glory is revealed in Christ, then the creation will be reversed. Creation would rather that happen now, but longs for whatever the grace of God is going to produce And I'm sure that the creation would love to have more and more saved sinners with their feet touching a renewed earth. God cursed it in hope, verse 20 says. In hope. Amazing. And then we groan, it says, like the creation. 
I do. Listen, you want to die to self-fulfillment? Then long and anticipate. Long for it, anticipate it. Anxiously and eagerly await it with confident hope. Don't look for some great fulfillment here and now because we need to learn the lesson that even creation already has learned. I want to finish this by reading a rather lengthy excerpt from J.C. Ryle's sermon, Home at Last. It is a favorite. Just listen to this and our time will be done. There is such a place as heaven. No truth is more certain in the whole of Scripture than this. There remains a rest for the people of God, Hebrews 4.9. The earth is not our rest. It cannot be. And there breathes not man or woman who ever found it so. Go, build your happiness on earth if you're so disposed. Choose everything you can fancy that would make life enjoyable. Take money, house, lands, learning, health, beauty, honor, rank, obedience, troops of friends. Take everything your mind can picture to itself or your eye desire. Take all, and yet I dare to tell you, even then you wouldn't find rest. I know well that a few short years and your heart's confession would be, it is all hollow, all empty and unsatisfying, all weariness and disappointment, all vanity and vexation of spirit. I know well you would feel within a hungering and famine, a leanness and barrenness of soul. And ready indeed would you be to bear your testimony to the mighty truth, this earth is not our rest. Oh, brethren, this life so full of trouble and sorrow and care, of anxiety and labor and toil, this life of losses and bereavements, of partings and separations, of mourning and woe, of sickness and pain, this life of which even Elijah got so tired that he requested he might die, truly I should be crushed to the very earth with misery if I felt this life were all there is. If I thought there was nothing for me beyond the dark, cold, silent, lonely grave, I should indeed say it would be better never to have been born. Thanks be to God, this life is not all. I know and am persuaded there's a glorious rest beyond the tomb. This earth is, the only, is only the training school for eternity. These graves are but the stepping stone and halfway house to heaven. Yes, heaven is truth and no lie. I will not doubt it. I'm, more certain of my, I'm no more certain of my own existence than I am of this. There does remain a rest for the people of God. And what sort of a place shall heaven be? Heaven shall be a place of perfect rest and peace. They who dwell there have no more conflict with the world, the flesh and the devil. Their warfare is accomplished. Their fight is fought. At length they may lay aside the armor of God. At last they may say to the sword of the Spirit, Rest and be still. And they watch no longer, for they have no spiritual enemies to fear. They fast and mortify the flesh no longer, for they have no vile earthly body to keep under subjugate. They pray no more, for they have no evil to pray against. There the wicked must cease from troubling. There sin and temptation are forever shut out. The gates are better barred than those of Eden, and the devil shall enter in no more. And heaven shall be a place of perfect and unbroken happiness.
Mark what your Bible tells you in the very chapter which contains the text, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Brethren, think of an eternal habitation in which there's no sorrow. Who is there here below that is not acquainted with sorrow? It came with thorns and thistles at Adam's fall. It is the bitter cup that all must drink. It's before us, behind us. It's on the right and on the left. It's mingled with the very air we breathe. Our bodies are racked with pain. We have sorrow. Our worldly goods are taken from us, and we have sorrow. We are encompassed with difficulties and troubles, and we have sorrow. Our friends forsake us and look coldly on us, and we have sorrow. We're separated from those we love, and we have sorrow. Those on whom our heart's affections are set go down to the grave and leave us alone, and we have sorrow. And then, too, we find our own hearts frail and full of corruption, and that brings sorrow. We're persecuted and opposed for the gospel's sake. That brings sorrow. We see those who are near and dear to us refusing to walk with God, and that brings sorrow. Oh, what a sorrowing, grieving world we live in. Blessed be God. There shall be no sorrow in heaven. Not one single tear shed. There shall be no more disease and weakness and decay. The coffin and the funeral and the grave and the dark black mourning shall be things unknown. Our faces shall no more pale and sad. No more shall we go out from the company of those we love and be parted. The word farewell shall never be heard again. There will be no anxious thought about tomorrow and that could spoil, spoil our enjoyment. No sharp and cutting words to wound our souls. Our wants will have come to a perpetual end. All around us will be harmony and love. And he ends it like this. Oh, Christian brethren, what is our light affliction when compared with such an eternity as this? Shame on us if we murmur and complain and turn back with such a heaven before our eyes. What can this vain and passing world give us better than this? This is the city of our God himself when he will dwell among us himself. The glory of God shall lighten it. The lamb is the light thereof. Truly we may say as Mephibosheth did to David, yes, let the world take all for as much as my Lord the king has come again in peace into his own house. Such is the Bible heaven. And there is none other. End quote. I couldn't resist reading all of that. So it was just not only this sermon, but J.C. Ryle just put the exclamation point on it. Beloved, you want to die to self-fulfillment? Long for the return of Christ. Set your mind on his return. And all that the scriptures promise. And there you will find strength and comfort. You will live by greater faith. You will have greater courage. You will have greater usefulness, greater godliness, greater righteousness. And in the end, everything you have suffered will produce something that could not even be imagined so as to be compared with what you suffered. Bow with me. Lord, I am grateful for the illumination of the Spirit of God on pastors of time past. Thank you that those become fitting words for this final principle. And even a, 
wonderful context of the Christmas celebration. You spent it all on us. You gave it all for us. You became poor that we might become rich, and you, you've bestowed upon us the inheritance. And we see our hearts and our complaints and our temporal idolatries and our attachment here, and we say, Lord, why would you focus on your people and give us such an inheritance when we squander so much of it? We squander the opportunity to magnify what, what is to come. As Ryle said, we turn back so easily, longing for what's here. Lord, at times when we think about that, we're all sadness. And yet we, we marvel that you have promised such a thing, knowing that we would have timidity here and fear. Help us to have strong faith the midst of losses and sufferings and afflictions and persecutions. We're going to need it in the days ahead for whatever you might bring. May this death of self-fulfillment and this longing for your return become in us such a powerful anticipation, such a passionate eagerness and earnestness that we put every bit of our affliction in its place into perspective. Lord, I pray for souls here that have never known you. They don't, they don't have you as their portion. They've never believed. They're just attached and anchored and grasping things here. What a sad existence to have to face the inevitable sufferings of this life and then, and then a death with no hope and then face a judgment with no covering, no mercy. Lord, be kind to them as you have been to us. We were no different. Rebels at heart. We're not more savable than anyone. You, for some strange reason, fixed your heart upon us. When we were yet enemies, fix your heart upon them. We pray in your mercy that they might know you as their portion and know what it means to inherit the Lord Jesus. And maybe they could have the very first Christmas like no other this year. Lord, we pray for our sweet, precious friends, the Kotekis, and all those in our midst who are suffering similar things. He's been such a faithful elder to us. He is such a faithful, godly man. His dear wife, Sharon, such a faithful, godly woman. And their family has experienced such a precious grace and they've ministered so often through our prayers and because of their faithfulness, just minister your special grace to them in their hour of need. And we ask for you to intervene with your mercies in any way you choose. We trust you. We don't long for here. We long for heaven. Whatever you give us here, we, we bless you. And whatever you, you take from us here, we bless you. And we thank you that you allow us to die to self-fulfillment. And by your spirit, may we do just that. For your honor and your glory until you come, we pray. Amen.